Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Emily Willingham on The Tailored Brain. First, I wanted to remind you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the psychology or science and medicine category for episode number 100 with Lisa Feldman Barrett on seven and a half lessons about the brain. This is Lisa Feldman Barrett, author of seven and a half lessons about the brain. And you are listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Emily Willingham is a journalist, scientist, and best-selling author. Her new book is titled The Tailored Brain, From Ketamine to Keto to Companionship, A User's Guide to Feeling Better and Thinking Smarter. Emily, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. So what was your goal with The Tailored Brain? Um, I had a few of them, actually. I and have spent a long time writing about claims that have to do with the brain and other aspects of uh, health. And one of the things that I try to do is sort of flatten expectations around pretty extreme claims. And there are a lot of those around the brain. So one goal for this book was just to take a look at some of those claims and look at the evidence base or not for them and uh, find out what holds up under that kind of scrutiny. The other goal that I had was to look at why people think they have something they want to fix about their brains and maybe ask, is this something that I need to quote unquote fix, or is this just somebody else telling me that it needs that to be addressed? And so those were the two main goals when I was writing it. So chapter one is titled Meet Your Brain, The Planet. What is Planet Brain? A lot of people like to metaphorize the brain as like a computer, you know, and they talk about it being wired and things like that. But, you know, it's just as organic as a tree or a penguin or your liver. And so it's it's a complex thing. And if you start to think about it more in terms of a living system rather than something that connects and disconnects and is wired, I think it just works better as a metaphor. So I describe it as a planet in that first chapter and characterize it as something almost like in an ecological sense with a lot of interacting parts that influence each other in constant state of fluctuation. Dan E. Lieberman wrote a book about a year ago called Exercise, and he points out in this book that people have been uh, researched who are just sitting idle for a long period of time, essentially all day. And even though they're sitting idle, not really using their muscles at all, other than to sit in that chair, they're still burning a pretty insane amount of calories, sitting there doing nothing <laughs> just with their thoughts. And a lot of that has to do with the energy expenditure of the brain. Why is it that the brain is burning so much energy, even when it's not necessarily doing anything? Well, because it is actually always doing something. Um, you know, they had this, there's this sort of myth that's not true about the brain that you only use 10% of it, you know. And then there's this other idea when they first discovered it, there's a network in the brain that's just kind of hanging out, sitting there when you're doing nothing. And and what they discovered when they first realized this network might exist is that it's actually quite busy. And when you think you're sitting there doing nothing, your brain is not doing nothing. And it's an energy hog. Out of all the energy we take in, I think the brain takes up a fifth of it, you know, even though it's by no stretch a fifth of like our body weight or anything. So it just it needs a lot of resources to do what it does, even when we feel like we're doing nothing. What is the default mode network? 
<laughs> so that was the network I was just referencing. It's a terrible name. <laughs> and it got its name. I think it was about a quarter century ago. They started finding hints that this existed. And I think there are people who still would say, you know, maybe it doesn't or it doesn't exist the way it's being characterized. But it certainly serves as kind of a good shorthand for talking about this part of you that to- that focuses inwardly a lot like if you start to think about something terrible that happened to you in fifth grader that you did by accident that was like a public embarrassment and then you start to like spiral down into all these other like examples of that that's kind of that network and action just kind of reminding you about yourself and really focusing on yourself um but it got its name because at first they they discovered this activity going on when people were off task while they were imaging them. They had a task and, and the brain was, you know, showing that there was a task. But when they were off task, this thing was, this network still was showing busyness. And so that's why they called it that terrible name. It's like in the default state <laughs> of not being on task, this is the network that's active. And there's another network that I hadn't really heard of before that you say early on is found throughout this book, and that is the Salience Network. What is um, the Salience Network? You know, the default mode network gets a ton of attention because people who do like psychedelic studies and things like that focus on it quite a bit. And it really was kind of the first one to gain traction as a, as a network. But the other two that I talk about in the book, one of them is the salience network. And salience is, of course, just like what's important out there. And if you start to think about what's your in your environment, the sensory inputs in our environment are just bananas, right? So you have this, this attentional network that says, no, that thing right there is important. The rest of it, you don't have to pay attention to but this thing over here that big sound you just heard in the middle of the night you need to pay attention to that and that's kind of the network that calls your attention to important things in the environment chapter two is brain tinkering subtitle there is tools and techniques and before you really get into the details of some of these tools and techniques you do point something out that you hinted at at the start of today's conversation. That is, there is a lot of research on the brain, but there's also a lot of incorrect research about the brain. Why is the conducting and reporting of scientific research such a flawed process? And what are some of the most important safeguards in place to try and defend against this, Evelyn? Well, it's just one thing you discover if you start to dig in the literature of studies about what does this to the brain and what happens to the brain if you do that is that they don't ever seem to follow the same study design or protocols. And so it's just a mishmash and it's very hard to draw a signal from that kind of noise. It's kind of like working with the brain itself, which has a lot of noise. And so to get signal out of it, you have to do a lot of controls. And neuroscience is pretty messy. They don't even have the same names for everything. Like the three networks I talk about in the book, they, they're in the literature, they all have different names. They're not all called the same name by all the people who do research on them. And so that just befuddles things quite a bit. And it's, it's hard to find studies that replicate previous results or that are comparable because their designs are similar and things like that. In discussing brain-computer interfaces, or BCIs, you talk about transcranial direct current stimulation. What exactly is this? How does it work? And have users reported any serious side effects from attempts to utilize TDCS? Yeah, I talked to a neuroscientist who's a great deal of expertise in this, and his big warning was just, you know, (laughs) you should not try to do this. It's what it kind of says on the tin. It's applying like a direct current. You put electrodes on and you go to your 
brain and the and there are some studies that sort of kind of suggested that maybe this might improve some you know facet of your cognition or something but they they sell these do it yourself kits for <laughs> for this um, transcranial direct current stimulation, and you can go to Reddit for example and see what people say about it. And some of them are having some pretty negative sounding effects. Like one of them, like I realize this is you know just kind of anecdotal, but they'll say things like they lost their bilingualism, or they can't spell anymore, or their anxiety increased, or they can't think of words now and stuff like that. And you know, I just feel like that was one of the things about this book. It's like, you know, let's go as low as we can with what we're kind of doing to our brains in the absence of a good substantial evidence base. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. There are certain things you cover in this book that aren't all they're cracked up to be or all they're marketed to be, I guess I should yeah. say. But that's something that can have a a serious detrimental effect on your overall well-being if you lose an entire language as a result of trying to shock your brain into doing something that you want it to. I, 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 like I said, that's anecdotal. It's on Reddit, but I, there were just enough of those reports within an absence of any kind of established efficacy that I just think, you know, and the neuroscientist I mentioned, he was like, yeah, don't, <laughs> don't order a kit from, you know, Amazon or some other purveyor that you're going to use to like shock your brain. Like that's maybe not the best way to start. So chapters three and four are all about global cognition. Now, this is a term that I had not heard before reading your book. What is global cognition? I'm kind of using it to distinguish between some like the social cognition and that kind of thing. So global cognition is your thinking capacity. And I think what it generally would distill down to if you had to do it would be kind of your problem solving capacities. And what exactly is Spearman's G? So the, this is kind of a concept that underlies what people perceive about intelligence and how much of a genetic contribution there is to it. If you take a series, they, they discovered that if you take a series of tests that sort of examine different aspects of your cognition, that people tend who score well on one tend to score well on the others. And there must be this kind of unifying factor underlying them that, that, that makes that possible, that explains that how they're able to do that. And so then you get this, um, the concept of the Spearman's G is just kind of one, the, the shorthand for a factor, such a factor like that. And then that in turn kind of becomes, well, is that common factor, some kind of genetic intelligence, you know, inherited intelligence that's explained by the gene variants that you carry. And then the shorthand for that is just G. So Tom Brady makes an appearance in this book. Not only can you be great like Tom Brady if you eat a lot of <laughs> avocado ice cream and do resistance band workouts, but apparently a part of Tom Brady's repertoire is doing brain games on the mm -hmm. computer, perhaps his cell phone. And brain games are something that I have done in my life as well. It's not something that I've stayed consistent at. But if you have that Brain <laughs> HQ app on your phone or on your tablet and you're doing that with regularity, does getting good at those games translate elsewhere in life? So the research suggests that for games like those, there are these so-called brain games that when you do them, it's kind of like if you do crossword puzzles, you get better at doing crossword puzzles. 
You know, you get to know, like, or if you do the spelling bee, the New York Times spelling bee, you get better at doing the spelling bee if you do it over time. And that's kind of a near effect or a near transfer. It's just that skill gets better. Um, but there's, you know, what people are trying to get is far transfer, where you get kind of a more global effect. And so you see this kind of lifts all boats in the brain effect. And that's not something that, um, the very, very strong analyses that I've seen of some of these brain games indicate happens. We don't really get that. They don't see this far transfer happening. So We all have a cognitive load threshold, Emily, and this, again, is something that you talk about in Chapter 4. We have that ceiling where if we go beyond that, we start to see pretty serious declines. Mm -hmm. Too much cognitive load affects our ability to just use our brain in general. One solution that you point out is called outsourcing the load. How does one go about doing this? Well, we kind of do it all the time without really probably thinking of it that way. Um, like an example that comes to mind that I've been thinking about lately is, you know, if you're in the kitchen, you're something's boiling over, you've got two screaming children, somebody calls you on your phone, it's important call, it's buzzing, and then somebody rings the doorbell. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot, right, to take care of. And then you're asked to make some decision. And you're not going to be very good at making that decision because your burden is maxed out, right? Because you're dealing with all these many things. But if you had like a stovetop that says, that shuts itself off when it feels something boiling over and you have a doorbell camera that says oh that's somebody I don't even need to answer the door at this time for and your phone can go ahead and say Emily is not available right now call back in five minutes then you've offloaded <laughs> some of that burden to these gadgets right um, and so we have lots of ways of doing that I have uh, calendar alerts that, for example, for this meeting today, because I just forget things, I get very focused <laughs> on my work. So I have an alert 30 minutes before and 10 minutes before so that I know. And that takes the cognitive burden away from me of trying to start to remember that the whole time so that I can work on what I need, you know, like my daily deadline stuff while I wait for meetings to happen and things like that. And as I write in the book, we also have each other. We share burdens with each other, which has a great deal of utility. Yeah, no doubt about that. And there are obviously plenty of drugs that promise to enhance one's cognitive load. Does research show that any of these actually work a la Bradley Cooper and Limitless? <laughs> I know. Wouldn't you like to be Bradley Cooper? Any anything? Um, for a I lot of reasons, that, yeah. For a lot of reasons, I know, right? Um, yeah, nothing is really showing that kind of uh, broad effect, and certainly not with that durability. Like, you can take things like um, the drugs that usually are prescribed for ADHD. You know, students take those, so they have to focus on the exams and all this other stuff. But those don't outperform just having a cup of coffee really in terms of that transient um, improvement and focus and there's certainly not like a you know global <laughs> effect of that that like, will last you a lifetime so no we don't yet have you know whatever it is these people think that they want from a pill in the pill yet can exercise actually help with global cognition obviously uh, that is one of those things that does receive a, a lot of press a lot of positive press in terms of how mm -hmm. beneficial it can be for you beyond just the strength gains that you're making in the gym does it help with yeah. global cognition yeah so it's one of the few things that does stand out is having this kind of global effect um you mentioned that you had just talked uh, did you say you talked with dan lieberman or you were, you were talking about his book right i had spoken um, with him a year ago yeah. yeah 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 and you know one of his hypotheses i just um, interviewed him for something for scientific american actually and he hypothesizes that one of the effects of physical activity over a lifetime is it keeps our 
brain brain health span, you know, at a level so that we can function and take care of as you know putative grandchildren. And that is, you know, an, an interaction between this social responsibility and this physical activity that keeps us healthier for a longer time in our long lifespans. Um, what physical activity does at the physiological level certainly is promising for global cognition um, because, you know, it shunts blood to the head. That means more oxygen. So we're getting kind of refreshment, <laughs> you know, and uh, throughout the brain where we need it. There is um, some evidence that suggests that it upregulates molecules that are responsible for forming fresh connections um, between our neurons, which you might think it can be useful as we get older and maybe some of those connections aren't quite as fresh as they used to be things <laughs> like that it definitely is one of the few things where there's a very good evidence base the good news is you don't have to do a ton of it you know you can just do kind of just an average amount of moderate activity is it seems like it's enough so that minimum effective dose is somewhere around 20 to 30 minutes three to four Something times like a week yeah, something like that. It's really not excessive. And in fact, I mean, there are some hints in the literature now that if you are, you know, ultra athlete, people who really are just going you know, all out all the time, that that might increase risk for some neurodegenerative diseases. So there's some Goldilocks zone for exercise and for physical activity in general. Exercise is just a subset of that. Why do mindfulness practices like meditation help here, too? They help on a couple of fronts. I mean, one of the points I make in the book is that when we talk about improving the brain, everybody's always very focused on their own brain, you know, but the physical activity, if you do it with somebody else, there's benefits to it that go beyond just your brain. And the same thing applies for, you know, mindfulness exercises, meditation and things like that, because one of the requirements or one of the sort of tools you use for that is to observe without judgment and without reacting. And that's all, that's like a social practice in a lot of ways to do that because you do that before you can practice empathy. You have to have this kind of shutdown on judging something and just sort of feel what that other person, what they're feeling. And so it contributes to that. In addition to shutting down that whole rumination cycle you can get yourself into where you spiral down about what a terrible person you are. <laughs> if you are doing these practices, you can kind of use your salience network to get yourself into the current moment instead of revisiting all these things that are making you feel bad about yourself. How might socioeconomics impact cognitive functioning? That's a really great question and a great deal there. Um, I, I talk about a study in particular in the book that essentially describes poverty as a toxin and as limiting a person's potential that they have to to realize everything, all the capacities they have with their brains, because it's almost like a neurotoxin to be um, so in a socioeconomically challenged existence. It just it takes a ton of cognitive resources, first of all, to navigate life under those conditions and a lot of stress and anxiety, both of which heighten cognitive burden a great deal. Is that just a matter of a perfect storm of things working against you at that point where you don't have nearly as many people who have a vested interest in seeing you do well at a young age? You may be living in an unhealthier environment in terms of the neighborhood being mm -hmm. built literally on top of landfills at times. The schooling's not going to be as good because there aren't as many resources being pumped into the district. It's all those things working together yeah, or working against so many, you. Yeah, absolutely. So many factors that go into that that limit your ability to reach for what you can do. 
you know, I mean, everybody goes through life and has that experience to some extent or another, but, you know, poverty is that just, it hits every single aspect of your life that way. Yeah, that all makes a ton of sense. It's interesting, though, you point this out in the book. Why does socioeconomic status impact intelligence scores in the U.S., but not nearly as much in Western Europe and Australia? They, they, what the... The people who did the study you're referencing in, in the book, they there's we just have a bigger income gap. And mm. with that bigger income gap comes, you know, these effects and these other nations don't have as big an income gap. And obviously they have some social programs that support people through some of those aspects you just mentioned. Um, if you don't have to worry about health insurance and where it's coming from or your health care and where it's coming from, if schooling is kind of more uniformly offered, things like that, then you're not going to have the effects of that gap as much as we see here. Chapter five is on social cognition. A key to social cognition to our socialization as creatures is empathy. <laughs> Neurologically speaking, how does empathy work, Emily? We uh, to to be uh, to to empathize with somebody. I mean, it doesn't mean that you just have to like let their emotions wash over you, but it does mean that you have to have some skills. You you have to first of all figure out yourself is over here and they're over there. You have to know self from other. You have to do perspective taking. You have to imagine yourself from their perspective. You put yourself in their shoes. You see how they see the world. And once you can do that, then you can also feel a little bit of how they might be feeling the world. And that's 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 where the empathy is. If you can if you can do that and practice that. And again, you know, to to pull that off, one of the things you have to do is really dial back your judgment, especially I would say think negative judgment, so that you can get into those shoes without being like about it <laughs> while you're at it and um and resonate with them and their emotions. Within this, chap- within this chapter, you write that some studies show that early in life, the default mode networks of people engaged in ongoing interactions with, with each other start to couple. What do you mean yeah. by this? Well, it's interesting because what you see, this is in the brain, you start to see um, the activity in those networks. And you also see um, oscillations of brainwaves start to synchronize um, between people who are like, like romantic partners or people who are working together on things. And I just saw a study I was reading yesterday where it not only in the brain, but also in things like heart rate and heart rate variability of students working on the same thing in a classroom. And so we are, you know, we're not just a brain by ourselves inside of a skull. We're having these kinds of interactions and resonances with each other all the time. Is there a proven method to measure social cognition with relative accuracy? So I I look at a couple of the ways that we measure that in that chapter. And one of them is so complex and muddied that I don't see how it can be useful. And it's hard to do because, you know, if you're if you're trying to measure, well, how much do you feel of this person's feeling? You've got to establish what both people are feeling and do it with some level of accuracy and know that that's being read correctly. And I think that that must be something that's really difficult to measure. There is one test in that chapter that I, um, I give the URL for it's online that people can take. And that one seemed pretty good because it's, it's not asking you to detect an emotion in another person. It's just how do you respond in the given scenarios and kind of rating those responses by level of you know, perspective taking capacity and things like that. How does storytelling play into the development of empathy? 
it's just crucial. I just, one of the things I really landed on when I was researching this book and writing it is just to get the power of stories and not just telling it, but having it be heard and felt um, and even played back to you, which is something I describe in a chapter on stress and anxiety. It's just, we, we're doing this now. You and I are having you know, minds that meet, even though we're 2000 miles away from each other. Anybody listening to this or watching it, the same thing is happening. We're always telling stories to each other. When you tell a story, read a story, hear a story, see art, listen to a song, you are taking yourself and meeting another mind. And you're putting yourself into the shoes of that other person, right? when you read a fiction story and there's a character, you know, you're like, well, what are they going to do next? And can I predict? And you're constantly problem solving about, well, oh, here's a clue or here's a little hint about what's coming next. This is all cognition, curiosity, creativity, mind reading, all of these things at work that are all features of, you know, like really social interaction. Other than reading fiction, what are some simple ways a person listening right now can practice empathy with an emphasis on the word practice? So you could read nonfiction too. It's okay. <laughs> Just want to get that out there. Um, you can. I think the I, I have checklists at the end of each chapter. But the what I would do is I would practice not reacting and trying to put myself in that other person's shoes and see things through their eyes. That's a practice, and you can practice it. We're not born this way. Chapter six is all about stress and anxiety cognition. Anxiety has existed since the dawn of man, Emily. So how does it differ now versus hundreds or thousands of years ago? Well, I, I don't, I, it's not different now. It's just how we have to deal with it now is different because it has utility, right? You worry about things because some things are worrisome and you want <laughs> to not make them not happen. I mean, you want to make them not happen, right? So you you have anxiety about them and you watch out for them. But now I think we just kind of have it even if it's not necessary. There's just this kind of free-floating anxiety we have. I say now, obviously right now we have good reason for anxiety. <laughs> it's all around us. Um, but it did start out with some utility. It's just like everything else, it can go overboard. And when that happens, we can have a problem. Is there a common mistake that we make when we think about stress in modern times? Yeah, I think that people think that no stress is desirable, but it's really not. Stress can be like anxiety or like lots of things. You know, it's it has its utility. It makes you strive for things. You feel maybe some antis anticipation is a kind of stress, right? Um, it can kind of make you work a little more for things or, you know, if you're stressing up about it, you really focus on it. I mean, it has that utility. But again, if it becomes something more generalized or it keeps you from engaging in your daily activities, and feeling healthful, then it's a problem. Two people can go through the same exact traumatic situation with one suffering the after effects of the trauma much more severely than the other. Why is this? We all come into everything with a different toolkit and a different history and a different life experience. And the fact is that the same person who comes into something at one point and handles it, you know, without feeling those scars might encounter something very similar down the line and come away scarred from it just because of what's happened in the interval or what their status was when it happened to them. One big key with handling anxiety is identifying the problem that's stressing you out and solve it. But what if the stressor doesn't have an answer? 
Right. So that's a tough one, right? And so you have to practice. There, there, there. Different people are going to have to approach this in different ways. Um, I talk about a few things that we can try to do. You know, in that chapter, you can try to reappraise it. You know, if that works for you, you can try to make it kind of it just it's there. I have to deal with it. It just exists and accept it. Um, you can try to put it in a room by itself and think of it as something that's you know not going to go away but at least put it away in this room for now and come back to it later mm -hmm. there's just a lot of mental practices that you can try if it's a problem that you can't solve and obviously uh, a lot of people do turn to medications to try and help with anxiety issues do these anti-anxiety med medications typically help with these anxiety disorders that is something that is more for a clinician to address. I mean, the, the research is just variable because humans are variable. I, I didn't spend a lot of time in the book with one exception on the prescription drugs because I wanted to talk about things people could access for themselves. And I just sort of felt like if it was sufficient that you needed clinical support like that, you probably should go see a specialist and get input from them. My personal experience is they don't work well for me, but I have a weird reaction to them. And so everybody's just going to have a different experience with that. We've seen an increase in research on psychedelics and whether or not they can help out with anxiety. What did you learn from reading the, the literature on research regarding psychedelics and anxiety? And for anxiety, it wasn't just, just too astonishing. I, you know, there was a study, they did a study where they even had pills that had nothing in them, but people thought they were taking some micro dosing. And so they felt like there was some improvement in their anxiety. Um, the research shows kind of more promise in terms of those drugs for mood, especially, and then a certain kind of creativity, not all kinds of creativity. Once again, our old friend exercise comes in handy to help with stress. Does it go deeper than burning off an energy that would otherwise be bottled up from whatever is causing the anxiety in terms of exercise yeah. helping with stress? Yeah, I think it does in a number of ways. I think for one thing, some people are coming to see anxiety as almost kind of a motor condition and you know, you can alleviate it a little bit just through the act of movement and motion. A lot of our exercise that we do is outdoors and there's certainly research that suggests that getting out into nature, just seeing something green, it doesn't even have to be like a park, it's just like a plant, you know, kind of alleviates that a little bit. If we do it with somebody else and we share a cognitive burden, that releases it as well. Um, so things like that, that accompany exercise, kind of add on to the direct effects of that movement. Yeah, there was really good research, I think, out of the University of Michigan more than a decade ago that talked about just taking a 20 to 30 minute walk in nature mm -hmm. three to four times a week. And what's that that's doing is allowing you to unplug from all these different things around us that require our attention. We're just walking down the street. There are things that could be imminent danger if we choose to just neglect them outright. So going into nature and just not having to worry about anything except putting that left foot in front of the right foot and mm -hmm. repeating that process for 20 minutes can be enormously beneficial in every other aspect of life. Right. It's almost like a form of mindfulness. You're letting your mind wander. You're mm. not focusing on yourself, right? And you're just kind of like, did you, like you just said, there's a pace to it and a rhythm that lets you get out of your head. Very true. Bit. Active mindfulness. Can diet help with stress? That is, um, you know, there's not a lot of substance to the claims that diet would do that. There was, um, 
you know, the title of the book includes the word keto. And one of the few things that you see is that it's possible that with the reduction of a certain kind of neurotransmitter that might result from that diet, you might have a little less in the way of anxiety, but there's nothing kind of confirmed about it. And the problem with keto is it's such a big umbrella. Like people use that word to describe all kinds of things. It's a big wide variety of things, uh, not just like the keto diet. So it's a little mixed on that. Yeah, as soon as I saw the keto diet in People magazine, I knew it had jumped the shark. Now, before we move on <laughs> from anxiety, uh, there was something that you brought up at the end of this chapter that I was unfamiliar with, but it sounds like it has a ton of promise. So what is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, or EMDR? All right. That's that's controversial. Um, it's not, you, When you hear it described, you could understand why it would be. It involves a person, they, they, they find a safe place and then they, they relate the trauma, a trauma that they've had to a therapist. I'm encapsulating this very briefly. And then at the same time as they're doing that, there's a rhythm that's going on. The therapist is tapping and there's some kind of rhythm and they, it's called eye movement because originally it was people moving their eyes around, but there's some kind of motion and rhythm associated with it. And I mean, it's gained enough traction that it is in, in part of some, you know, practices that are considered legitimate. I think kind of what I hypothesize in that chapter is what's really going on is this is storytelling. And what happens is this person tells the story and they have it kind of related back to them. And in the process, there's motor, there's movement that's associated with it. And if you do view anxiety as having some kind of, you know, as a movement related condition, then those things can all come together and sort of relieve a bit of that burden on the brain. Chapter 7 is Attention and Memory Cognition. Memory athletes are a thing. Those really exist in real life, people. But their brains aren't that structurally different from non-memory athletes, nor was their intelligence capacity. So why do they remember so much better than the average person, Emily? I just love this stuff so much. So the, what they do is they use what well, the very basic thing that they use and they they build out on it and complicate it quite a bit, but it's a method of loci is what it's called. And it's where you create a story and it's a spatial story. And so if you're trying, so, you know, they're, they're, they, they remember hundreds of cards in a row, right? They don't take very long to memorize them and then they can recite them back. And what they're doing is when they see the number, they place it somewhere on a, on a, on a journey, like in their house. And so if you're in your house, maybe you put like the one of hearts at the sink or something. Right. And then if you saw the 10 of clubs, you put that on the kitchen table and so on. And then you would just go back through the house and you would revisit those and you would see those cards there or they create mnemonics from them. Like, um, you know, if one is A and two is B, then they start to spell little words from them as they go. And then they just recall those words and then say the numbers back again based on what, how those words are spelled. So they have some techniques like that that they use. Have any drugs uh, been proven to have a positive impact on attention and or memory? Like I said, I, they're, they're, people have co-opted some of the drugs for ADHD to try to improve focus, but there's not a durability to that effect. It's transient, just like those drugs are for the people who take them for um, you know, clinical indications. And you know, coffee does just as well. And there's not really a pill that's going to produce attention, focus, improve your memory for a long period of time, certainly, that I found anyway. What about meditation? 
So that is going to be helpful. There, there are some studies that show that people who do engage in that practice, which is a form of relieving cognitive burden. And when you do that and you clear your whiteboard, right, you have space again to put things on it. And it just kind of settles things down in your brain. So your cognitive burden is lower and that does lead to it can through indications that that does help you with your memory and your recall and things like that. Yeah, and it also helps with your attention and giving your attention to something is the first step in creating a memory. Right. And so as I point out in that chapter, I mean, this is the other network. So we have our, you know, the network that's our self, right? The default mode network. We have the salience network, which is what we need to attend to that's important. And we have our executive function network that's, you know, this is the the mature adult that problem solves for us, you know, and plans for us and things like that. And when you're doing that process we just described, you're using executive function, like we are now going to sit down and do this thing. And this is how we're going to do it. And if you start to mind wander your salience network, and your executive function network like no you need to step back into this (laughs) and get your focus back and do your breathing or whatever it is you're supposed to be doing right now and so they they get themselves all into kind of a balance that way how does our role as social creatures positively impact our memory um you know we help each other reinforce memory right through storytelling and that kind of thing and there's certainly they've shown that if we stay connected to friends well into old age we do better on things like this right we perform we we maintain our sort of cognitive health for a longer time if we maintain our social interactions and i think some of that is we relieve cognitive burden which gets us you know some space to, to retain and think. And we're also sharing with people, which helps reinforce our memory. Chapter eight is mood cognition, managing melancholy, depression effects, as you point out in this book, 15 million Americans and more than 300 million people globally. And while clinical depression is something that's obviously very serious, and hopefully that person is able to seek out help to assist them with the clinical depression, how can temporary depression actually be valuable to that individual? Well, I think, I mean, it's, it's just a, it's, it's a natural reaction, right? Like to get a down mood, like think about what's going on in the world right now is a natural reaction. It's just when it gains sufficient traction that it distracts you from everything else or makes it, you know, you can't find pleasure in life. You don't feel purpose and things like that. Then, then it becomes something you really definitely need to, you know, consult a specialist about. How and why is exercise helpful with depression? It's kind of similar to anxiety. Nature does have a good, I I would like to be clear that I'm not saying that this is what you should do instead of, you know, taking an antidepressant or something like that, because those do show efficacy for some people. But if you're looking for just a way to sand down the edges, you know, um, nature does have a offer benefit for mood uh, the movement does the uh, if you can develop a sense of awe that resets you as not the center of the universe but that there's this whole big world out there that's not entirely ugly and horrible things like that can really get your help your brain reset mood a little bit they're you know biochemical things that happen behind all that but those are the you know the immediate influences Well, certain cases uh, do require medication. Do you think that depression requiring medication is perhaps overprescribed in this country? I can't speak to that. I, I, I mean, it's so real 
the the issue is is that if you're just looking at the data that there's an average effect right but what if you look at it more closely it almost looks like there's this sort of like a group of people whom do who experience no benefit and then a group of people who do so how do you describe what's over prescribing <laughs> because we don't have precision enough medicine to know which group you'll fall into right when you're having sufficient experience to warrant that kind of intervention can psychedelics help with depression and if so how do they work they they see it seems like they might um there's just as i was closing up the draft of this book there were a couple of studies that came out that hinted at some potential benefit for at least microdoses and they they kind of operate by similar pathways they co-opt uh, the, the mood neurotransmitter which is serotonin and the pathway by which that operates it's similar to one some antidepressants operate by as well so that would be how they would have the effect and I came into that really agnostic. I have no opinion about <laughs> psychedelics one way or the other, but those that those were hinting at something positive. And of course, ketamine it was already is being used. So, um, yeah, that ketamine's seen a big resurgence in the last decade. And is research proving that ketamine actually does help with depression too? Yeah, I is one of the few um, prescription uh, interventions I focus on in the book because it's just you people have to quote unquote fail or have drugs who that fail them like you know half a dozen drugs before they can get to this one which seems to do a lot for people it really does hold a lot of promise and I hope that we lower those barriers so that people can get to it a little more easily you know it had this reputation as a club drug so I think there was maybe some resistance to making it um, accessible that way. Do omega-3 fatty acids or vitamin D help with depression? No, and I was really kind of depressed to hear that, actually. <laughs> I mean, I could, that was maybe not entirely agnostic about those. I was like, let's go fatty acids. But no, <laughs> you know, it was really kind of disappointing on both fronts. So. And what has the government agency DARPA discovered about mood changes in the brain? Yeah, they're very interested in looking at our brains and, and the mood changes and things like that. And so they spend a lot of studies examining what's happening with mood and um, not, and, and not just mood, but also, you know, they do doing studies with brain implants and things like that. And you've got to wonder, like, why is the Department of Defense so interested in these things? <laughs> but, you know, they they have their reasons, as I talk about in the book a little bit. No doubt about that. Chapter nine is creative cognition. What is creativity? So there are a couple of ways for this to manifest. It can be um, the kind of creativity where you're like, wow. <laughs> and and you, you see something that's used for a very kind of common purpose and you come up with this just like wacky new thing, new way to use it. And that's kind of called, that's divergent creativity where there's this thing and you come up with like lots of new ways for that thing to be used. And then the other kind is convergent to creativity where you can come up with lots of different roads to the same end, lots of different ways to achieve the same outcome. It's like those people who have plans A, B, C, D, E, and F, you know, that to achieve the same outcome is a form of kind of convergent creativity. And similarly to empathy, is storytelling crucial with creativity? Yeah, because it does make you, I, I think if you if you engage with somebody else's perspective, then obviously you're having a new experience, right? And new experience is a, a, a crucial to supporting um, coming up with new things and new ideas. Yeah, it feeds into that for sure. 
I'm going to bring psychedelics up one more time. Why do they help with creativity? Because I can uh, I can assure you, based on personal experience, that they do help in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, divergent, right? It, it's <laughs> it's it takes you across that line of, of like and figuring out what's salient and what isn't, and it takes you to where everything is salient, right? And everything becomes really important, and <laughs> and you can think of all kinds of new ways to see them and use them and all this other stuff. That's divergent creativity, and yes, it does, you know, kind of promote that in maybe some kind of chaotic way, but not so much the convergent form, they say. The studies seem to suggest. Well, and look, and you can come up with a lot of <laughs> original ideas in your head with your own psychedelics, but there is also a lot of overvaluing of those original yes. ideas going on in the moment, too. Yep, that's that broken salience. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, this is really important. And then later you're like, why? Yeah, <laughs> Did this I think means that was important. Absolutely nothing. It's total gibberish. <laughs> now, this surprised me a little bit, but how does sugar negatively affect creativity? Well, I, it's just, it, it's, it's especially, I think, the convergent form because it does take focus, right? To come up with a lot of different ways to achieve a goal. And, you know, if you, in theory anyway, if, the, if sugar has this effective uh, kind of more excitatory effect in the brain, then you're not, you're going to have more chaos than focus that way. And I got to ask about exercise one more time because <laughs> I'm a big believer in exercise and it's pretty clear based on this book that you are too, can... Physical exercise help with creativity as well. Yeah, I think, yeah, I actually think physical activity is about to have a moment, by the way. I'm just seeing it all over the place now. Everybody's talking about it so much. And the answer to that is yes. If you're out in nature and you can kind of get out of your own head and just let your thoughts wander, then that is absolutely a feeder process for sort of divergent creativity. And you also, you know, if you're walking around or you're on the treadmill or doing whatever it is people do, is there your exercise is just a subset of physical activity. So if you're cooking or you're, you know, needle pointing or whatever, um, your brain is doing its own thing, right? While you're at it. And that is a huge opening for creativity. It's a great moment for it. Chapter 10 is a freaky future far out, but not far away. What do you think of Elon Musk's Neuralink? <laughs> Um, I think that he kind of was standing on the shoulders of quite a few giants when he made that presentation. That's <laughs> what I think. <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see if they can get around some of the, you know, the obstacles to having durability with those, not just him, but other people who are working with those kinds of implants. Is yeah. DARPA working on anything noteworthy? Well, they were when I wrote that chapter because they're the ones who are funding some of these studies that are kind of looking at, you know, um, can you improve, like, in people who have epilepsy, they're looking at those brain implants and, and looking at their brain patterns when they start to, like you were mentioning earlier, when they start to feel a depressed mood and then kind of predicting that that's going to come along. And so they are very interested in taking peaks inside of our heads. Are you optimistic or pessimistic with regards to virtual reality and the brain? In what sense? What do you mean? Um, I don't know. Do you think that it's something that can be very helpful with what's going on with us neurologically? Or is it something that further drags us down into this, this make-believe world that is, isn't at all substantive and is just uh, devoid of, of any real experiences, I guess? Yeah, um, I think that that's a good question. And I think it's like any tool, we can abuse it, or we can use it for benefit. I think it holds potential for benefit. I mean, think about the storytelling possibilities there and the perspective taking possibilities there, for example. 
And in fact, it's being used for that to try to help people like build empathy skills and things like that. That is a current use of it. But obviously it can also be abused just like a hammer can be used, you know, to hammer a nail or to bonk somebody on the head. So. (laughs) All right. And last question, Emily, what's the next big breakthrough with the brain? (laughs) Um, That is a really good question. And I do think it's probably going to have something to do with like the brain nets and having brains communicate without speaking a word to each other. Wow, that is going to be crazy if and when we get to that point. She is Emily Willingham, a journalist, scientist, and best-selling author. Her new book is titled The Tailored Brain, From Ketamine to Keto to Companionship, A User's Guide to Feeling Better and Thinking Smarter. Emily, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this entertaining and informative book. Thanks so much, Trey. I really appreciate you having me. Join me next time when I speak with award-winning filmmaker Sean Baker on his new movie, Red Rocket. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.